Good to see everyone. What a great crowd. Um, good evening. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar. Welcome to Harrisburg, if you're not from here. We are so pleased today to welcome political advisor Jeff Weaver and Mayor John Fetterman to Harrisburg to discuss Jeff's new book, How Bernie Won, Inside the Revolution That's Taking Back Our Country and Where We Go From Here. On to our main event tonight, uh, Jeff Weaver, who began working for Bernie Sanders in 1986, was Bernie's campaign manager for the 2016 presidential election, as well as president of Our Revolution, a nonprofit founded by Sanders until June 2017. And he's currently the senior political advisor to Senator Sanders. John Fetterman, mayor of Braddock, Pennsylvania, a native of York, yes, with strong Harrisburg connections. He earned his master's degree in public policy from Harvard University and, of course, is going to be our next Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. So exciting. In How Bernie Won, Jeff Weaver takes us behind the scenes of the 2016 presidential race. What went right, what went wrong, where do we go from here? We'll close with the only endorsement you really need to know about this book, and that's from Bernie Sanders himself. Bernie says, only Jeff Weaver could bring to life the story of the inner workings of the historic 2016 Democratic primary. Anyone who wants to know what really went on behind the scenes of our campaign has got to read this book. From an insurgent effort to the national mass movement it has become, he was there with me at the heart of it. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg Midtown Scholar welcome to Mayor John Fetterman and Jeff Weaver. Take it away, gentlemen. We'll have a conversation first, and after a while, then we will take your questions. And when we get to the Q&A, if you could wait and look for the mic so everyone can hear, uh, that would be great. Thank you. I, I just want to start by thanking you, Mayor, for uh, hosting this and for Midtown Scholar. You know, I travel around the country a lot, and uh, folks may not know I have a big comic book store in uh, Falls Church, Virginia. And uh, stores like this are, uh, you know, so I love old paper. Uh, and stores like this are a real treasure. And uh, I think people who have stores like this take them for granted, but they really are increasingly a rarity uh, in this country. And so I would encourage you to enjoy it as much as uh, possible. I, wanna, I also want to thank John Fetterman for being here tonight. Yeah, well, I, I have to uh, give my ode in tribute to the Midtown Scholar as well, too. Uh, what an extraordinary structure and what an extraordinary um, operation here. Uh, this is one of these one-of-a-kind places that you could put into any book-loving culture city of Portland, Oregon, say, or San Francisco, and people would be blown away by it. It's such a treasure, and, and it's unbelievable that it's here in Harrisburg uh, and thriving the way it is, and, and it just, it's, it's such a great place, and, and I'm very grateful uh, to, to the mayor for hosting it and also for all his kind support, um, you know, during, uh, during the primary. And of course, it's an honor to be here on stage with you. Yes, yeah. Well, what's great about it is the, you know, the community that's formed here. And I, I want to thank you all for coming out and uh, listen to us talk a little bit about the 2016 race. But not only, you know, I'm not somebody who likes to live in the past, um, but I, I, you know, I do think it was important when I started writing this book to talk about what happened in 2016. Not so much as, uh, you know, I, I don't really, uh, 
sharpen a lot of knives for folks in this book. I think some people wanted me to go after people more. Uh, but I did wanted to give people an honest telling, at least from my perspective, about what happened in 2016, uh, what it means for the future, and how that race, you know, is not an, uh, uh, something that happened in isolation. It, you know, it's part of our history, and where the 2016 fit, uh, race fit into sort of the modern history of the Democratic Party, uh, and how, to me, it really represented uh, an effort by the grassroots of our party. Uh, to get back to the modern Democratic Party's historical roots of a party that's about opportunity, about inclusion, uh, and about greater and greater democracy, you know, something that, in my view, we sort of got away from in the 1990s with the flirtation with the more neoliberal approach to politics, uh, which, you know, severed some of the historical bonds which bound together the what I call the FDR coalition that had supported the modern Democratic Party and made it the dominant party in American politics for decades and decades. Uh, and so, you know, we got off track a little bit in the 90s, and I think 2016 was really an effort for people in the party to try to take it back and get back uh, on track. And, you know, uh, we see in this time around folks like John Fetterman and others running around the country who are talking, you know, ab about an approach to politics which is uh, more focused around people and the needs of working class and middle class people, and that's, that's, a, that's a big plus. It's, it's, uh, I also uh, remind people just how um, profoundly um, impactful uh, your race was. Um, what, you, what was espoused in that primary, you know, coming in from, and is now boilerplate for a lot of the democratic policy now. It's remarkable, and all that happened over just a few short years. Things that were, were once considered like, are now, you know, every person who's considering uh, or, uh, or a contender potentially in 2020 is signing off on all of these things in, in lockstep unison. And that to me is a, is a testament to how fundamentally um, that, that campaign has altered uh, our, our party. Yeah, well, and you know, it, it's, uh, I think in many ways there was certainly among the media establishment and the political establishment, I think they really misjudged where the American people were and where the base of the Democratic Party was the Democratic Party had, you know, was moving in a much more progressive direction, much faster than people understood, and I think we saw that. You know, I like to take credit for all of it, but you know, I was just a guy who worked on Bernie's campaign. But you know, when Bernie went out and talked to people, and tens of thousands of people show up with no paid advertising, it tells you something is happening uh, on the ground because it just doesn't happen well, that way otherwise. And, and I just have to say, as a practitioner, uh, I think perhaps one of the most amazing legacies is the fact of your fundraising, that it was so profoundly democratic, not, not in the party, but uh, in a party sense, but just that 25, 30, $40 contributions can literally fund and actually outraise in anyone in a presidential race. And to me, that's the essence of democracy. It's, it, 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 and, and you know, we did that with my own campaign. And, and now I, I think that is how we get money. That campaign demonstrates that we don't need big money in politics to have an interesting and uh, engaged public debate on the issues and running. And, and Citizens United, it makes Citizens United seem all the more corrupting when you see how it, I think it ultimately and ideally can be done with the way it was. No, no, that's exactly right. And you, you, you know, uh, one of the things that was such a big surprise to us was the generosity of people with their average $27 contributions. I, if I had said how much was the average contribution, everybody would have yelled $27. Because uh, it was such an astounding uh, uh, thing that happened in the campaign. We started off with a budget of $30 million. This was our 
And Bernie wasn't really sure we'd raise that much, right? And then we had this sort of fantasy budget of $50 million, and we ended up raising $230 million. Yeah. So, um, you know, without which we would not have been able to be it, successful. And raise that, just the dollar amount is amazing, but, but demonstrating that it's possible, like no one could have conceived that you could raise that much money online, uh, you know? And I think looking back 25 years from now, when it's we're more and more digital and online than we already are, it, I think that's that's the first uh, you know debate with Nixon and Kennedy on TV or whatever, and and it, it and I can just testify testify about my own campaigns of the the importance and the 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 vitality of raising your money that way. It's 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 really so profoundly democratic and and uh, and fair and accessible to anybody. No, that, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that campaigns are, you know, you, you can certainly test this, campaigns are expensive. There's no doubt about it. And uh, I always say to Bernie, there's the world we're trying to create, and then there's the world we live in, and we have to make sure we understand which one we're in at the moment. Uh, but, you know, campaigns are expensive, and you, you have to be on television. Television is expensive, and you've got to send mailers out, and that's expensive. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people on the left are like, well, we shouldn't do those things because they cost lots of money. And, well, that's true, but they cost lots of money because they actually persuade voters and what have you. Uh, and so, you know, when folks donate that $27, they are enabling the kind of discussion in the body politic about the issues that, you know, that John, yeah, John th talks those about. Those donors changed the, the party by, you know, having the conversation uh, and made that possible. And the whole party has moved accordingly as a result of that. Yeah. And, you know, you see it, you know, I mean, I travel the country and you're obviously in contact with other candidates who are running around the country on sort of similarly progressive uh, platforms. And, you know, we see it in, you know, in state after state where, you know, if folks are supported by people at the grassroots and they have the resources, in fact, the progressive uh, candidates are, are more often than not the, the winners. And when that's not the case, you know, I mean, I think a guy named Pete D'Alessandro, who was one of our top guys in Iowa, uh, running in the third uh, district for Congress, you know, he gets outspent 10 to one on television. So the guy loses, it's not a big shock. Um, and, you know, a lot of outside groups pour money into these uh, campaigns. Uh, but, you know, when, when folks can go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, they, you know, they can win, as we saw, in, you know, in New York City. Yeah. No, it's, 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 really, it's, it's really remarkable. And um, I, I find myself just still in disbelief that two years ago, we, we had no idea what was coming. You know, right. <laughs> and we had no idea, and and just I think how much more ways than one. Yeah, well, <laughs> everything's changed, and 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 our our party is able, I think, to is going to be able to recover and prevail because of the the needed correction that it went as a result of the the campaign. No, that's right. I mean, you know, if you think about, you know, Bernie announced formal formally announced in a poorly attended press conference by the Capitol building. Uh, at the end of April in 2015, you know, he talked about Medicare for all, and he talked about free tuition of public colleges and universities, something that we used to have in the United States. People, most people in the, this room are probably too young to remember, but that used to be actually, uh, the, uh, the, you know, uh, tuition used to be free or almost free at public colleges and universities, you know, investing in infrastructure, uh, rebuilding the American industrial base. You know, the, you know, all these things were sort of fringy issues, and Bernie was at 3%. Uh, in the polls, and you know, the media sort of chuckled and wrote a few stories, and uh, you know, we raised over a million dollars in 24 hours after that uh, press conference, um, and and folks all over the country were signing up uh, to volunteer, so we knew something was uh, afoot. But you know, people were just, you know, were hungry for a, a progressive message that was going to uplift working families in every zip code. Yeah, 
No, and, and uh, you know, just to, to see the, the, the ongoing impact and to, um, some of you, you may not know, uh, Bernie actually came to Pittsburgh and did a rally for, for my campaign two weekends ago. And, and you know, it drew almost 1,000 people you know, uh, in the dead of sun, summer, in the, the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, it's amazing, you know, and, and just, there's just, the, the, the message has just resonated at such a deep level, and, and uh, I, I just marvel at, at, it's almost now where it's, uh, so much is taken for granted of the stuff that, that was brought up, and as you just mentioned, polling at 3%, and now it's, you know, I think, what was the poll, 57% of Democrats want candidates to be more like Bernie or something. Right, right, you know? right. And you know, you got over 60% of people polled now, this is across all parties who now support Medicare yeah. for all. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a mainstream uh, position and it just took somebody to articulate it, really. Uh, I think the people were already there. Uh, so it wasn't really a matter of uh, persuading folks all that much, frankly. And yeah. you know, I saw a statistic on the media not long ago Half of the candidates running for Congress as Democrats in primaries who've raised $1,000 or more, half of them have Medicare for all in their literature, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, four years ago, it would have been 2% or 1%, I mean, or maybe nobody. Um, I, think, I, I think it's even less than that. I don't think th that phrase even really existed. In, in, right, uh, right, in, right. And uh, so, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's really amazing. And, and what it also, I think, demonstrated that you know, if you're able to generate enough of a grassroots support, you can run for office, and, right. and it's just it's ve it's it's very uh, it's very empowering. Yeah, and you know, I, mean, one of the, I was talking to Bernie the other day. I mean, one of the things that he's very gratified by is the fact that you've seen so many people running for office at all levels this this cycle, you know, from school board all the way up to you know U.S. Senate, and you know, folks who never run for office before who said, you know what, or now maybe it's because of Trump. They're like, well, if that guy can win, I can win. Who can't win? Uh, <laughs> but I think it's more than that. I think you know, I think folks are empowered by the idea that, you know, with grassroots support, with friends and neighbors and supporters knocking on doors and talking to uh, folks that you can actually make a difference that, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you know, have a long political resume to run for office and, and to make a difference. And, you know, so Bernie's very great, you know, and he, he's traveled around the country. He obviously was campaigning with John, but, you know, he was out in Kansas with uh, yeah. uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some primaries out there in Kansas. So it's supposed to be a deep red state, you know, thousands of people showing up. Um, and, you know, he'll be in more places, but uh, the, the number of new faces in politics is really uh, phenomenal, and, you know, who knows, in 2020 cycle, maybe there's be people in this room who are not ever run for office before who think about doing it, so. Yeah. It, 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 really, it really is, and, and, uh, and as we head towards, we head towards 2020, um, it, everything is defined by those benchmarks, or those policy positions, essentially. And it's, you know, the, the, I don't know, does anyone ever heard of Dave Weigel? Uh, the, he's the, the chief political correspondent for the Washington Post and whatever. And he, his joke tagline is, is uh, a potential person will say, I'm blah, blah, and he'll be like, he's running, you know, or she's running. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if he or she would sign, you know, onto the, be a co-sponsor of Medicare for all, it's like, he's running, she's running. Right. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's really... Uh, now I would say it's it's platform, uh, the basic platform. It's in fact it's uh, I don't mean this pejoratively, but it's it's almost mundane now because right. it's so like oh yeah well of course of course we want that you know uh, it's not like well I don't know it's like it's just become understood of what what we as as uh, most Democrats aspire to and think uh, any 
reasonable a society should aspire to. No, that's right. Like that's right. I mean, a, a majority of House Democrats are supporting the single-payer bill yeah. in the House of Representatives. And, you know, Bernie's uh, Medicare for All bill in the Senate, you know, he used to get nobody supporting mm -hmm. it. And now, you know, it does look like a who's who list of people yeah, they're talking about running for president who are, uh, who are supporting it. But, you know, but that's a function. But all of that is like fed from the bottom. You know what I mean? That's because people responded to it. That's not because, you know, Bernie, it's, oh, it's Bernie. It's because the millions and millions of people who voted for Bernie and came out for Bernie and support candidates who espouse a similar uh, politic. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the fundamental workings of democracy in action, right? Where leadership, right. leaders are moved by the people. And, and also, he, he uh, it's, for me, uh, really helped drive home the bottlenecks of our democracy, where uh, three individuals possess enough, uh, the same amount of wealth combined as half our population. A, a country of 330 million, three individuals have amassed as much wealth as 50% of our country. And that is extraordinary. And it is extraordinary how we as a society have allowed that to happen and how it's, it's happened right in front of us and this idea of that's that's absolutely extraordinary, and and the fact that that the campaign has really highlighted just how profound that level of inequality and how unjust that is, and how damaging that is for our society. No, that's right. And you you, you know when you don't have to like we didn't have a finance department in our campaign. I tell people that who were in politics and like why do you don't have a finance department? So we didn't have a finance department in our campaign. It was is a keyboard. You hit the button and people would give us money, um, <laughs> and. Uh, just the way it worked. But, I, you know, because I, I think people, you know, people think about money in politics and the sort of quote-unquote corrupting influence, whatever. And it's not so much like somebody gives you money and then you do immediately what they say. But there is like a, a process when you spend a tremendous amount of money, uh, time raising money from sm in small groups of people at people's houses here and there. Like, those are the people you end up coming in contact with. And so your perspective gets changed. And, I, you know, actually Barack Obama in his book wrote quite candidly about this, about how when you spend all this time in, in these sort of circles, like your connection with other people starts to be frayed a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always often think about that. And, you know, with Secretary Clinton, you know, I mean, I know many of her staffers now because we, you know, campaigned obviously together in the general election to try to defeat Trump. Um, you know, and she even, even her senior staff were out doing big dollar fundraisers at people's houses. And they just spent an enormous amount of time, uh, you know, trying to raise the money they needed to uh, win. But, you know, it kept... It keeps, you know, there's only so many hours in a day, and if you're spending time doing that, you're not spending it doing something else. Yeah. Uh, to, to use a football metaphor, uh, the Bernie's, Bernie's campaign was like the Green Bay Packers. It's owned by the, the, the people. It's owned by yeah, the we're, we're in Pennsylvania. Now, Do you, can you give yeah, us no, a No, I, I know, but, right. but the, uh, it's just such a perfect <laughs> example. It's not owned by some billionaire that goes in and buys right, it and right, whatever, right, right, and, right. And, and that's why it's, it's one of those, in, you know, enduring classic teams. So um, it, it, it's, it, uh, you mentioned the, the, the realignment of the FDR coalition, and I think that really is at its core of, of the essence of what our party should stand for. No, that's right. And so there's a, in, in the book, there's a section of the book, uh, which I usually read, and maybe I'll read at some point here tonight. So FDR in, in 1944, the war is winding down, gives uh, his State of the Union address in which he outlines a second Bill of Rights which talks about the economic rights of Americans and, and the sort of unfinished business of the New Deal. So my editor said, no, no, you can't have that in there. It's kind of dense. People won't read it. They'll skip over it. You've got to take it out. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's, you, if you leave anything in the book, if that's all the book is, is just that and people read it, that would be great. Uh, 
because he talks not just about this economic bill of rights, but also talks about what happens if we don't pursue it, which is uh, having defeated fascism abroad, we would open ourselves up to the danger of fascism in America. And that is exactly what we are seeing happening uh, today. Um, and so there are wise words, and everybody should, you, you, can, you don't have to buy my book to read it, although no, the mayor wants you to buy books, so do I, but you can probably find it online. Uh, if you want to read FDR's uh, 1944 State of the Union Address, I think it really lays out the unfinished business of the New Deal. It's a, a roadmap for the modern Democratic Party, uh, and it talks about what happens if we don't do it. I, I, I can't think of a better question than one that you all will come up with. So I, I think, are we ready to open the, the floor yeah. to, to everybody here? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to moderate the, the oh, Q&A. Okay. There's one of me, and there's a lot of you. So um, just some ground rules. We're, we want to get to as many people as possible, so let's just keep the questions uh, short and simple. Without further ado, who has the first question? Yes. How much worse off would we be if Hillary had won? Well, I, I mean, I, well, I, I don't know where you were in the primary process. You know, I have been with Bernie since 1986. You know, I was his driver. I've spent more time with Bernie alone than anybody probably than his wife. Uh, and so I get Bernie, I get his politics, and I share them. Uh, I, I have to tell you, after the primary process, Bernie worked very hard running from one end of this country to another in support of Secretary Clinton. I was on TV all the time for Secretary Clinton. I was a surrogate for her at the St. Louis debate. Uh, and he and I both shared the view that uh, Trump presidency would be a disaster, and it has been a disaster. At every opportunity, despite his uh, appeal, you know, his overt appeal to working class people, at every single opportunity, this administration has chosen to stick the knife in the back of those people. Whether it's a tax bill, whether it's trying to rob those people of their health care, uh, or whether it's trying to break up working class solidarity by demonizing certain parts of our electorate, this is a disaster. In my view, our country is on the edge of a knife, and we can fall off one way or we can fall off another. When I look at pictures of D-Day, film of D-Day, of America's greatest generation dying in the sands, that's the danger we face now. So European de democracies dealt with this danger in the first part of the 20th century. We're dealing with it now. Hopefully we'll respond differently. Next question. Yes. Right Hope that wasn't too strong. Thank you very much. Carl Dunkerver, veteran. My question is this about the primary campaign with Bernie. Debbie Wasserman Schultz set up the computer system that Bernie and Hillary and several other Democratic candidates shared. We were in Iowa at the time supporting mm -hmm. Bernie's campaign. Yes. We were first assigned to Davenport, then to Iowa City, and finally ended up in uh, Cedar Rapids. No, uh, the Cliffs, whatever. Uh, Council Bluffs. Council Bluffs, yes. Yeah. Right uh, talk about going across the whole state. That's one end of the other. Yeah. So anyhow, we kept hearing about how the Democratic Party's computer system, the firewalls, kept going down, so basically everybody had everybody's information. And we never really found any, I mean, there was apparently one of the Democratic workers for Bernie left a, basically his calling card on the other side and said, hey, we were here, we just want to let you know that we didn't take anything, but you know, we should all get together and put up put up a better firewall. Then the Russians came later and took John Podesta's stuff, so I'm saying, what was done in the interim between 
the time where the card was left and the Russians were found. And presently, we have a president right now who doesn't even recognize that the Russians have taken over our internet and our electrical grid and can shut down the electrical grid. The traffic lights presently, at any time, the Russian government can shut down our traffic lights. But I'm more concerned right now about what happened then. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, folks, will, uh, uh, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of the mechanics of this, but I'm because I could talk about it for two hours. Uh, but so there is a system that DNC has called a voter file, uh, and during a campaign, everybody who pays to participate in it gets a mirror copy of it, and you input all your data. Well, you know, when someone calls you on the phone and says who you're voting for, and you're like, oh, I'm for Bernie, I'm for Hillary, that data gets put in there when your your volunteers are put in there. Anyway, so they're all mirror copies of one another, and you, you, you're not supposed to have access to the other person's. So it's just electronic firewall. So there was a point at which the electronic firewall came down, and a couple of people on our campaign who were subsequently fired snooped across the firewall uh, over a period of a couple of minutes. Um, and uh, in response to that, Debbie Wasserman Schultz overreacted and cut off our access to the data, including the data that we had put in there about our volunteers. And we had paid, you know, $400,000 to access this system. It ended up being, you know, there was a threatened lawsuit, and they ultimately backed down and what have you. But it did cost us many, many, many days in Iowa, which was uh, a big problem. But, you know, there, are, there were, and obviously the Russian uh, intervention there exposed even more defects in the DNC's uh, uh, data security. I think that they have taken a number of steps since to fix that, starting when Donna Brazil took over. She was very serious about it, um, and I think they're in a better place now, although I'm, I'm not intimately involved with the security over there, so I don't know. But it strikes me that they're much more aware and on top of this. So, hi, thank you for being here. Yeah, my um, pleasure. So I've actually, I, I've been a Hillary supporter since 2008, but I want to sure. thank you for the campaign that you ran because it really brought out issues that we needed to talk about. Um, my question is, since the primary, we have a really fractured party. Um, I don't know how you want to slice that up, but we, I feel like we do. And I want to know uh, how you feel uh, going into 2020 United, we can fix those fractions in the party between the Hillary supporters, the Bernie supporters, or however you see it characterized. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I want to, and, and, you know, thanks for being involved in politics and, you know, supporting the secretary. As I said in the general election, I was, you know, out there 24-7 uh, working to try to get her elected. Uh, but, I mean, let me say this. So the quote-unquote fractures in the party, you know, we hear about a lot of it on uh, cable news and other places. And, you know, and I got to tell you, I think in many ways it's overblown, and there are some very loud people on social media who like to, you know, uh, spit poison at one another. Uh, and, you know, but you can't confuse that with what real people, you know, on the ground are, are doing and talking about. And, you know, I sense there's a tremendous amount of uh, democratic unity. I, I think Trump has helped unify Democrats of all uh, stripes uh, during these uh, last couple of years. Um, I've been working on this, uh, what's called the Democratic Unity Reform Commission that was formed out of the Democratic National Committee last time. It had Bernie appointees, it had Hillary Clinton appointees, and it had DNC appointees. And we had a, you know, a, a, a unanimous set of recommendations about reforms to the party. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I guess my world's a little different. You know, I mean, I know Robbie Mook, who was Hillary's campaign manager. You know, I had drinks the other night. Uh, other senior people on the Clinton campaign that I've been working with to try to help, you know, push these reforms, and they've been helping to push these reforms too. So, I think there is a, a lot of realization among folks now. There is a rump group in the in the uh, 
in the Democratic establishment, I, who I would not necessarily identify as quote unquote the Clinton wing, right? I mean, they might have supported S Secretary Clinton, but I think they're much more conservative than she is, frankly. And uh, you know, you saw this was this. Uh, meeting in a bunker in Columbus uh, last weekend in Columbus, Ohio, where this sort of corporatist group uh, got together, decided how to stop the Bernie people from taking over the world. Um, well, you can read about it, but there were no Hillary people there. Um, but, you know, so there is a small group. Uh, they're increasingly isolated and increasingly desperate in the Democratic Party because they're just so out of sync. I mean, they don't, like Hillary Clinton's too, way too far left for these people. You know what I mean? It's like, it, they're, they're what we used to call Republicans. I grew up in New England where, you know, <laughs> And there used to be, we used to call them Republicans up there, right? Republican Party, something different now. But when I was growing up, these people would have been called Republicans. So uh, I think there's a lot of unity at the grassroots. I think there are a few people who still hold grudges on both sides, frankly. And, I, you know, I obviously see a lot of it on social media. But I try not to pay too much attention to it and sort of push forward. Yeah. Hi. Um, so I am a resident of uh, this area. And I have met uh, with Democrats like um, George Scott. And uh, in one of our meetings, I asked him how, what, what is it that he's going to do in terms of bringing uh, both segments of the Democratic Party together. And uh, his response was somewhat like, well, uh, we are trying to do uh, our best. However, uh, the progressive or the left side of the party needs to uh, also uh, step forward and do their share. And then he also said, well, there's not a lot of, ch there, there are not a lot of chances for candidates running on exclusively progressive platform. So uh, my question is directed to both of you. What do you think uh, of, uh, Mr. Fetterman has, you know, he's broken that uh, myth. And uh, also, wh what do you suggest to people from the Demexit side of the aisle, because there's quite a few of them who are so disillusioned by the conduct of the Democratic Party that they're not even open to listening to anything from that side. And there's a little something about uh, Bernie's movement that I would like to ask. A lot of people said, well, well it's, it's all good in theory. However, uh, you know, in practicality, it's not particularly his foreign policy. Uh, it's very weak. So uh, can you please uh, elaborate? Sure. On that? I don't, do you want to talk about local Pennsylvania politics? More th That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> um, you brought up Dem Exit, and uh, in 2016, as uh, as he pointed out, um, my wife was a Bernie delegate uh, in Allegheny County. However, and uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the the convention in Philadelphia was really tense. Uh, it was really it was, tense. There were some tense moments, yes. Yeah, we, we uh, my wife and I worked really hard to say, look, we all ha we have to come together. We have to come together. Because if we elect this guy, if we let that slip away, I, what I would say, I was, uh, and, and I, was a, I was a prominent surrogate for Secretary Clinton in Western Pennsylvania in 2016, and I would literally beg people. It's like, if you don't, vote for Secretary Clinton, you are wearing a MAGA hat, you know? And if, if she's not your perfect candidate, you know, look at what, what will Donald Trump be? What will Donald Trump? And I said, if Donald Trump wins, they're gonna hold the Senate. If they hold the Senate, they're gonna have the House. And 
they're going to appoint at least two Supreme Court justices. And we're at that nightmare doomsday scenario right now. And that will create a permanent conservative tilt to the Supreme Court for the next 20 years. And that's profoundly alarming to me. And for anyone that's going to want to, that would want to check out based on, on that, I would beg them not to and say, we need every vote. We need every, we need every vote. And my, my campaign philosophy is always every county, every vote. I will meet you where you're at ideologically and geographically. And we want to bring you back to the party and engage because we have a profoundly destructive force that is undermining our democracy right now in the White House. And we can't ever let our vigilance down again. And that's my message, is, is that dissatisfaction as a citizen, that doesn't give you the right to bail out of the process. You know, I, I would hope as a citizen and as a patriot, you will participate even if that candidate is not your perfect candidate. It's a vote against a highly destructive and toxic individual. No, no, I, 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 I. And, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a story about a, a county party. It's not in Pennsylvania. It's in another county, another state. And uh, so a couple of folks in this county uh, got 50 of their friends on a bus, and they took them to Iowa to campaign for Bernie in, 20, in 2016. And then they got 50 of the, those same friends to get back on the bus and go campaign for Bernie in South Carolina. And then they came home, and they went to a, their county party meeting, and they realized there was more people on that bus than were showing up at that meeting. So if you get the people on the bus to go to Iowa, you can get them to go to the county meeting. And they went to the county meeting, and they got rid of all the people who were running the county party. And now they run the county party, and they have meetings that have two or 300 people showing up at their county party meetings, right? So for all the people who want a dem exit, like find your 50 friends. In most counties in America, that will win you the county uh, committee seats in that county. So uh, you know, good progressives know that how you win is by organizing at the grassroots, bringing people together, because we have more people than they do. And that includes whether it's, you know, establishment type people or Republicans. We always have more people. So get people together, organize, dem enter. And if your local party's not doing what you want, run for office. It, not only public office, but inside the party. So, I, you know, I, I, you know, we get, look, so, I mean, one of the things I did enjoy about the book is that during a campaign, there are a lot of narratives that are created, and narratives are storylines. Uh, and you know, we had storylines, and the other side has storylines, and you try to get the media to adopt your storyline and not the other person's storyline. Um, and you know, one of the storylines was uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't know about foreign policy. You know, he likes to talk about the economy, doesn't like to talk about anything else. He doesn't care about black people, doesn't care about women, doesn't care about gay people. He only cares about uh, economic inequality and doesn't know anything about anything else, right? Uh, and any question you ask him, he'll only answer with a question about breaking up the big banks. You probably all heard this, right? That's a very, it's actually, a, you know, it was an effective narrative for them. It happened to be false, but it was a narrative. Uh, you know, um, I've actually been encouraging Bernie to, to, to write a book about his, uh, you know, as a congressman, he has traveled extensively overseas, met with foreign leaders, and with grassroots people. I remember when I worked for him in the House, you know, when uh, Congress people go on these trips overseas, uh, you know, the State Department sets up trips for you, and often the, the the American Chamber of Commerce, which is over there, they want to show you some things, their factories overseas, and this, that, and the other thing. And Bernie always insisted on meeting with local groups and local people. Uh, you know, so he's gone to Saudi Arabia and talked to distance in Saudi Arabia. He's been to Palestinian refugee camps. You know, he spent 
part of his early life on a kibbutz in Israel. He has been to Afghanistan. I mean, so over and over, you know, he's been to, to refugee camps on the border with Turkey. Um, and he's met with, you know, leaders at the top of countries all over Europe. So, you know, it was a narrative during the campaign. It's complete hooey. Um, I, I often encourage him. His wife, Jane, has collected these just tremendous and very moving pictures of Bernie overseas with, you know, for people from kings to just average people around the world. And I always want to have him put it in like a, one of these coffee table picture books, like, you know, Bernie around the world. Um, and uh, oh, go ahead. And I don't think it'll be an issue if he does run again, or, you know, because we were, we were deep diving with that level of nuance in 2016. And today, our president literally is tweeting at county, uh, at countries, you know, saying, you know, calling him Rocket Man and, you know, and we're going to blow you off the map. I mean, like, things that you never, ever thought were theoretically possible under any situation. He sends an all bold cap tweet to Iran. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary, you know, like, um, and and it's it's quaint now to look back and be like, oh, did Bernie have enough policy or did Hillary whatever? And now <laughs> Donald Trump is sending angry all cap tweets at at potential nuclear powers and destabilizing an already profoundly unstable portion of the world. It's it's extraordinary, um, and and I think it speaks to we got to get this back. We got to seize the reins back from this kind of craziness, and it speaks to more damn unity. And, and really making a case against them exit. Got a question over here. I have been um, thrilled with your progress, Mr. Fetterman. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering what strategies worked for you and what you're continuing to do and how you're going to win this next election. The strategy is simple, um, and, and I apologize if it sounds simplistic, it, but it's every county, every vote. You know, every place matters, and that's the truth. Pennsylvania has 67 counties, and we went to almost 60 of them during our primary. And we went to uh, uh, Fulton County, uh, and Fulton County, I believe, has 700 Democrats altogether in the whole county. And I'm like, I went to their Democratic dinner, and because I'm like, I won them all, you know? And, and I won them all, and, and it's about margins. Now, I don't think for a second that we can turn Potter County blue, you know, at least not anytime soon. But we shouldn't be losing Potter County 80-20 or 75-25 because we don't contest it and we don't get up there and, and, and have the conversation. And I think that's what's fundamentally important. It's like Philly is important. It's the biggest city in our state. Pittsburgh, my base, Allegheny County is important. But you know what? Erie is really important. Dauphin County is really important. Center County is really important. Um, you name it. These are critical places. And, and that's our philosophy is every county, every vote, it all matters. And, and wherever you are at ideologically or geographically, we want to make that case to you. And, and that's... Uh, it's, and that's, sim that's not esoteric and it doesn't have polling models or all this other, other kind of thing. It's just, it's hard work and it's 55,000 miles on my truck so far. Yeah, and that really is, you know, I mean, that's, it's interesting you say that because Bernie, you know, talks nationally about this sort of return to a 50-state strategy for the Democratic Party. And, you know, we're not going to win in these red states. We're not going to turn these red states around unless 
we actually go there, run candidates, talk to voters. Uh, and, you know, too little of that has gone on uh, in the past, you know, 25 years that, you know, we have essentially uh, given up, you know, almost half the states. And look, but look at Texas now. Texas is in play. Georgia right. is, is in play, you know. Yeah, Arizona. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Question in the second row. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wonder, it's a two-part question. The, the first one is, what are the top party leaders and former presidents and candidates doing to identify younger people who are going to be in the next generation of leadership? And second, for places like Western Pennsylvania, where we recently saw the election of someone who's really very much in the center, um, how are those people in those areas who have to be centrist actually being encouraged instead of being marginalized and told they're not progressive enough? Yeah, so a couple of, uh, I'll answer the second part first. Um, so, you know, we, we often hear this like progressive versus centrist. To me, the really the margin is, are you with people or are you with corporations? That's really the dividing line. And a lot of people who have sort of either stylistic or personal politics, which tend to be more, I don't use the word conservative in the, in the ideological sense, but you know what I mean, tend to be, um, not as fiery as John Fetterman or Bernie Sanders or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders did best, frankly, during the Democratic primaries in, like, small towns and rural America. And, you know, I was talking with the top person of the Clinton campaign. It was like, you know, we sort of didn't get that at the beginning, that he would do well with people that we were identifying as, quote-unquote, moderate Democrats or co conservative rural Democrats. But that's where he did th the best, right? And I think... Uh, you know, a progressive message to those folks. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that people have to be quote unquote centrist in those areas, if by that you mean sort of pro-corporate. But I don't think, you know, Connor Lamb, I don't think, you know, he ran unabashedly against the Republican tax bill, which was a big giant giveaway to corporations. Like, that is not the model of quote unquote centrism that we saw among Democratic Party centrists in the 1990s, who would have wanted to embrace that tax plan, right? So I mean, so I think there's a, you know what I mean? I, I think sometimes we get locked into notions of politics and, you know, it's sort of linear, and there's Democrats on the left, Republicans on the right, and there's all these moderate independents in the middle, and like, that model, I think, has been demonstrated to have been completely shaken up and not really a model that we can rely on anymore. So I think you're seeing even people who are running as quote-unquote moderates or not, not, not fully identifying as progressives in some places, actually, if you listen to what they're saying, the themes that they're talking about are much more progressive than the label they may hold on themselves. So I, I, I'm big on substance and less big on labels. In terms of identifying new leaders, uh, you know, I think we've seen a, a surge, as I was saying, of people who have chosen to run who have not previously run before. And, you know, the primary process in the Democratic Party, I think, is a fantastic vehicle for us to identify those young leaders. And, you know, people come forward. Can they organize people? Can they inspire people? Can they talk about a vision that's going to get people to the polls? I mean, that's what John has done here. He's not his first time running, obviously. I mean, he's done the hard work to... to you know, to appeal to folks in Pennsylvania, and that's, you know, that's what has to happen. This is a, I'm not for the anointing process. I actually like primaries. I like big primaries. I like everybody to be in the primaries. I like, let's have it out in the primaries as Democrats. Like, you have a different vision than I do. Let's have it out. And then when the primary's over, one of us is going to win, and then we're go, we'll go on from there. And then the next time we have a primary, we can fight about it again. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the key. When somebody wins, and it's inevitable someone will win, you got to hug it out and you got to do everything you can to get that person elected because he or she is running against a, a, a representative from a party that is literally undermining and, de and, and uh, destroying our country from within. 
And that's what I try to emphasize to, to folks, you know, and, and if, if the only candidate that you're going to agree with 100% is yourself if your name's on the ballot. Uh, otherwise, otherwise, go with the Democratic Party on these key issues because right now that party has, you know, broke, you know, turned the knob to, you name it, and broken it off, and and they're they're in lockstep with with uh, a president that I can't even process on most days. Like, how is this possible? It is literally surreal. Then uh, um, the man that championed locking up children in cages. Cages, I mean, that's extreme. My, I was in a store with my wife earlier this weekend, and we have a four-year-old, and he got separated, and when we found him two minutes later, he was hysterical. And all I could think of is what trauma we have inflicted on these children that are separated for weeks and, and put in cages and, and whatever. And that was done in our name by this president. And again, gets back to this how critical party unity is and after the primary duke it out you know you know come out with a bloody nose and a bloody lip but you got to get and hug it out and and get the right person elected over the other side we have time for just a few more questions but we had a, a question right here in the front row um i wondered um i understand uh that According to Greg Palast, 1.2 million voters were uh, eliminated from the rolls uh, in the last election. And um, I'm wondering whether what you think, paper, would paper ballots be helpful to uh, stop the hacking, not only by the Russians, but by the Republican Party, maybe, I don't know if the Democratic Party is doing that as well, but I think it's mainly the Republican Party that is very effectively getting uh, eliminating people from the from the voting rolls, and also maybe a, uh, switching people's votes, flip, fl uh, changing their votes after they voted. Would paper ballots help uh, to stop that? And well, I, I, I mean, I let me speak to sort of broadly, and then I'll talk about your particular question. You know, voter suppression in this country is a big problem, um, and it is um, primarily. I'll, I'll tell you why I say primarily. Primarily carried out, carried out by Republicans who like laws that will keep fewer and fewer people from voting. They don't like poor people voting. They don't like people of color voting, um, but, uh, and they enact a lot of laws to keep that from happening. And they do other things. I mean, one of the things talk about party unity during the course of the primary campaign, the Clinton campaign, our campaign, and the DNC all jointly sued the state of Arizona for their carrying out of the Democratic primary, a process where you had literally had people waiting five hours in line. Uh, the number of voting locations had been whittled down to, to very few, almost none in communities of color in Arizona. It was a deliberate process by the Republican uh, administration to keep people from voting, period. End of story, right? And so, you want to talk about party unity. We all sued them together. Um, and, you know, we should, frankly, the Democratic Party should do more of that to open up the process. Now, and, you know, there's a lot of ways you can do this, like onerous voter ID laws are obviously one of the ways these voting roll purges. But, you know, we saw in New York State, you know, New York State admitted in a case that the Justice Department intervened in against the state of New York that during the 2016 process, 200,000 people were purged, improperly purged from the Democratic Party rolls in, uh, in New York City, right? Um, a number of states, they're a minority, but, you know, Pennsylvania being one of them, that now continue to have closed primary systems, which are increasingly locking out young people who are overwhelmingly are registering as independents and disproportionately locking out young people of color 
um, in creating Democratic parties which are smaller and more easily controlled by party heads. And that's New York and Pennsylvania and uh, Maryland and Connecticut and a few others of Florida. Uh, but most states don't have that process, right? So, with the, so there are uh, aspects of, of voter suppression going on in a lot of places, and uh, uh, we have to fight uh, all of them. In terms of paper ballots, look, I. You know, I grew up in Vermont. We have everything was on paper up there. But, um, but you know, I, I live in Virginia now. We had these crazy machines that had no paper record, and they had a dial. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen these kind of machines. They have a dial, and the thing moves up and down. I was like, you know, it took you four or five times using it to even understand how it worked. And now we're going back to the Scantron sheets, where you know you fill in the circle and you put in, and the sheet falls in the basket. So you do get an electronic count. So you don't have to have people hand counting them in the first instance. But if you do need a recount, those paper records do exist so that people can go back and look. And I think that that is, we, sh we should not have voting that does not include a paper record. Absolutely. Can I, can I say this? Uh, um, remember 2000, everybody hated paper ballots, you know? And they're like, we gotta get rid of this, you know, this is a new millennium. So I, I think that's a great solution. There has, to be, there has to be both. I too am concerned about voter suppression my philosophy is, is that the party with the best, most just policies want the most free and open elections, you know? But I'm, truthfully though, I'm much more concerned about voter turnout, you know? In, in my home county, it was 17%. Yeah. In Ocasio's uh, primary, it was uh, 11%. Yeah. I mean, you're talking nine out of 10 people didn't mm. even take the time to just be like, eh, you know? That's alarming to me. With everything that's going on in our society politically right now, why isn't that 60, 70, 80 percent? Because you know you can't you can't ignore what's going on. So so yeah, I, voter suppression is is evil, and it's almost exclusively the uh, tool of the Republicans. However, we also like I'm I'm alarmed by continually low turnout, even in times like this, and uh, we want to bring that turnout up and get more people into the conversation. Uh, yeah, so I'm sure you're both aware that there's a huge disconnect between Rust Belt America and rural America, between the inner cities and the suburban communities. There's this huge disconnect between how they vote, how they think about different issues, but if you go in into these uh, rural communities, I go to school in a very rural community, uh, Clarion, I believe you were there just a few weeks ago. I, I, I got an awarding, I love Clarion. Yeah, yeah, I was too <laughs> sick to come and visit you. I go to the university, <coughs> but yeah. Um, anyway, so you, you look in these little communities, they all think the same way as you would in the inner city. There's not enough money to fund our schools. There's not enough money to fund opiate treatment programs. But there's still this huge disconnect when we think in the same general manner. Do you do either of you have any idea how we could bring bring these communities together that seem so different and separated via these uh, large amounts of space, population-wise? They seem so different, but on the micro, micro microscopic scale, they're they're the same. Do you have any idea how to bring people together into understanding that we should be working towards the betterment of our entire society? rather than just our individual community that seems so special and different from the other communities around us. Uh, real quickly, I'm, I'm a four-term mayor of a community that's 80% African-American. Um, and I uh, enjoyed the support and endorsement of Clarion County uh, during the, the primary. And I pride myself on going out uh, regardless, wherever it is. It gets back to that every county and every vote and, and trying to talk about the commonalities. 
and I call them pers the persuadables. There are some people that, you know, your angry uncle at Thanksgiving that no matter what you do or say is going to be that angry uncle. Uh, but there are enough people that, that can be engaged with and can, you can focus on the commonalities there, whether it's with addiction, whether it's public education. We all across the spectrum aspire for a better life for our children. And the policies that, that are being espoused by our party speak to that, I think. And, and we need to go out after every vote, no matter where they are. And, and I am as comfortable in Clarion County as I am in Philadelphia or in any of these places. You know, Pennsylvania is a huge, you know, I don't have to tell you, uh, across the board. And, and, uh, and there's a lot of commonality there. Yeah, and I would just say, um, it's sort of the where we go from here part of the book, which is, you know, the truth of the matter is, is when you poll people and you say, what do you want out of life? You, it is incredible, in fact, the commonality of what people say, regardless of what race they are, how old they are, it, you know, whether they're single, they're married, they're men, they're women, it, it, it is incredible, right? And so I think we do have to have a message of common aspirations. Look, people want to have a decent job. They want their the kids to have a future. They want to figure out how to take care of their aging parents. They want to live in social dignity. They don't want to be bankrupted if they get sick, so on and so on and so forth. All the things actually that Franklin Roosevelt talked about in that second state, of the, that 1944 State of the Union. But so the aspirations of America are very similar. But at the other, on the other hand, and, I, and, I, and frankly, and I, I talked about in the book, I think our campaign, Bernie's campaign, talked in, uh, more effectively about these sort of common aspirations. At the same time, we have to recognize that the barriers that people confront in attaining those common aspirations are different in different communities, right? Like my children not likely to be shot down by the police. Other people, that's a reality for them, right? P some people live in places with bad schools. Some places don't. Some places have been deindustrialized. Some places haven't. So I think if you can articulate, and in many ways, probably Secretary Clinton's campaign was better at articulating these, what she called barriers, right, during the campaign that different communities face. But I think you have to articulate a set of common aspirations in a frame that says, we want everyone to be able to, to meet these aspirations. And to do that, we have to recognize the different barriers that people face in different communities and address those. So that when I'm addressing a barrier in a community that's not yours, it's not that I'm picking somebody over you, because this is the game the Republicans like to play, right? Oh, you're helping those people. You're not helping. They don't care about you. They only care about those people or those people. But what we have to understand is if I'm helping these people because we're all, we're lifting all these boats, and that requires different tacks in different places based on what the problems are in those local communities. But we have to do it in a frame of everyone's going to get here. Question in third row. Hi. Uh, everything you guys have been saying is really great, and, and, but in order to get it, you'd have to have a Congress that's democratic. How are you going to beat gerrymandering without the help of the courts? Well, um, well, I mean, you know, we may beat it anyway. I mean, you know, the Democrats may win this time. I'm not saying they, I'm not saying they will, but you know, they certainly can beat it. And I mean, let's be clear: gerrymandering. Republicans happen to control an overwhelming number of of uh, governor's chairs in this country and many legislatures. You know, we've lost, Democrats have lost a thousand, over a thousand seats in the 2000s, you know, between 2010 and now, uh, and, you know, which gave Republicans control of these legislatures, which allowed them to gerrymandering, to gerrymander. I'm not saying that, that Democrats haven't gerrymandered, because believe me, if you hear sometimes Republicans howl that has happened in Maryland or other places, right, where Democrats are in control. Um, but I do think it's a real problem, because it, not only is the congressional district gerrymandered, but the, 
the state legislative seats are gerrymandered, so to get rid of the people who you get, so it's like it's layer upon layer upon layer. I, you know, some folks who worked on our campaign were working on some state senate elections down in North Carolina in these heavily gerrymandered state senate seats, right? And they did these polls, and you know, people love them, right? And so all their opponents did all this negative advertising, and the negatives of these Republican state senators went through the roof, right? Because it was all this negative advertising. On election day, they all won overwhelmingly. Because at the end of the day, the seats were so gerrymandered that no matter what you said, no matter how much people hated them, they couldn't lose, right? So it's a problem. And obviously, in Pennsylvania, you had a, yeah, you well, know. Real quickly, um, we have 18 Congress congressional districts. Uh, and gerrymandered districts, it was 13 Republicans and five Democrats. And post realignment, do you know what? the makeup would have been between Republicans and Democrats in 2016 under the new map. Does anyone know? No? Uh, it would have been 10 Republicans and 8 Democrats. And I think that's a fair result based on Pennsylvania voting in 2016. But would you believe that the Republicans howled at that new map and tried to appeal to the Supreme Court? They won with two more members and they still weren't happy with that. And that shows that they don't want fair, they want it all. And gerrymandering is despicable because it, it, it negates the will of the, the, the people. And there's one party especially that even under the fair new net map would have still come up two seats ahead and that's not good enough for them. And, and now this new map will represent the, the, the will of the, those. And, and I'm proud to be, again, part of a party that just wants it to be fair and wants it to reflect the will of the people. So remember how you were saying there were going to be people in this room that were someday running for office? See? There There's go. a handful of us, actually. There's another one up there, and Jill's here somewhere. Uh, who And we are running because, well, I can't speak for them, but I'm running because no one else would do it because I'm in one of these areas where it's on paper impossible for a Democrat to win, but am inspired by what happened in 2016. And I'm sure you get this all over the country, these people who are running because of Bernie's campaign. Uh, do you have advice on how to kind of keep your head up and plow through all of this when everyone tells you you're going to lose? Well, you know, there are, there are uh, I, 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 uh, you know, there are 56 contests in the Democratic primary and caucus process. I lost 33 of them. So I lost 33 elections in a single year. Um, uh, we did win 23 of them, but, we, but you know, uh, so I know what it's like to lose, and I've been on races with Bernie, you know, in 1988 when he lost his congressional race by three points. Um, and so I've, I, I understand how hard it is, and you, you, you just have to stay focused. And, you know, sometimes it's not even this election. You're really running for the next election. I don't want to talk candidates that, but sometimes that's, sometimes that's true. I mean, John has run a couple of times. Sometimes you don't win the first time. You one, win the yeah, next time. Yeah. One, on, uh, one in one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, and the, 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 the thing is, is that... Um, for you not to get discouraged, you know. If it was easy, there uh, you wouldn't be the only one doing it, you know. <laughs> really, if it was easy, you wouldn't be the only one doing it, and and um, and that's the only thing that's ever changed anything is is that somebody decided I, I want to try a different way or I want to see if I can make this work, you know. And and if you don't win the first time, you know, you know, how old are you? 
Well, you're young and naive, right? You know. <laughs> as as uh, as Scott as as the man running for governor called uh, everybody young and naive, uh, uh, and and that's the thing. Like you know, it, it, your your youth is inspiring, and your willingness to lean in and take on these challenges is the only thing that's going to help rehabilitate our democracy in this country. So. Our time is short, so we have just one last question here. Uh, this is for both of you. Um, I read so much and watch so much about politics, and I keep hearing about a blue wave, and then I hear, oh, no, it's not what you think it is, and then I hear, no, it's really going again. So being that you have both been on the ground, can you tell us what your opinion is of this blue wave that we're supposed to have? Well... Uh, you know, the, the waves are like this, right? And so wave is not a thing like this, it's a thing like this. And so you're going to see a lot of this between now and the election. Uh, and the way for it to be cresting when the election happens, as opposed to in a trough, is for people to get out and work for it, people to knock on doors, people to call their friends, people to get their friends out and vote. I mean, because, look, the intensity on the, I mean, the truth is, the intensity on the Democratic side I see around the country is incredible, right? I mean, Democratic voters are energized. It is a midterm election, right? Republicans are somewhat demoralized, despite what you hear. Um, and if people will get their friends out of, when you go to the polls, if you take three people with you, that wave will be cresting on election day. And that's so, it's really in the hands of everyday people, frankly. Well, if you look at historically, the, the party in power always loses a significant amount of seats in the House. So you can bank on that. And the, the, the clearest, most pure bellwether of that is the fact that Paul Ryan announced his retirement. You know, this is a practitioner, and he was like, I'm out, you know. Uh, so I think, that, so I, I expect. But I don't care if there's a wave or not. You know, it doesn't going to impact. I want it. I hope it's a tidal wave. But I, I will, you know, I, I'll keep it PG-13, but I want to just go after them and you know and not going to let up until november 7th you know and and i don't care if there's a waiver or what uh, it's i'm going every county every vote every time and and it's not going to impact how hard i'm willing to work to make sure i get the result and if hey uh i'm wrong that there is there was a brew wave and we win by 15 points great you know but if i don't ever want to wake up again the day after and lose by 40,000 odd votes and, and turn control over to something like that. Can we give one more round of applause for John Fetterman and Jeff Weaver? <laughs>